0: Namaste, this is episode 44 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I am Anna O'Carlan, your host as usual, and today's guest on the show is Mary Crilly, the founder of the Sexual Violence Centre in Cork City Centre. Today's show is discussing quite a serious and sensitive subject and one that needs to be brought in to the public debate more and more and I think it's very important that we're giving the sexual violence center and MIRI the platform on the Rebel Matters podcast to discuss the work that they do and also to talk about the general experience of people who suffered sexual violence in this country but Before we get stuck into the conversation, I do want to say that if you're in a position where you want to or need to reach out to anyone about sexual violence or something that has affected you personally or someone in your family, you can do so by going to the sexual violence website, which is sexualviolence.ie. The email address is info at sexualviolence.ie. The free phone number is one eight hundred four nine six four nine six, 496 496 And the text message phone number is 087-153393. The address for the Sexual Violence Centre is number five Camden Place Shandon Cork. And even if you're not in Cork, uh You I'm sure you could reach out to the Sexual Violence Center there and they'll put you in touch with someone who is in your own locality. During this episode, we talked a lot about how women were treated in the past around about the same time that the Sexual Violence Center or the Rape Crisis Centre, as it was known back then, were treated, and what kind of services the Sexual Violence Centre provides and the work that Mary and her team have been doing so it is a very interesting conversation and it's something that doesn't get told or a conversation that that doesn't really seem to be in the public domain enough for the extent that sexual violence is still a major problem that we have in this country whether it's been happening at the time or whether it's kind of accepted by society covered up by the by the sort of national institutions are at very best just that organisations that should be speaking out and standing up for people who have suffered sexual violence are turning a blind eye to it and trying to brush it under the carpet so there's a massive credit going to Mary and the team at the Sexual Violence Centre for helping victims and survivors of sexual Mm -hmm. violence and also for Um, taking the time out of her day to speak to me on the Rebel Matters podcast. There has been a lot of stuff going on in the last couple of weeks outside of the podcast stuff that I've been doing, but actually I was at the It Takes a Village Festival the other day and did the first live podcast with TPM, the hip-hop duo from Dundalk, and that's going to be coming out next week. The Takes a Village Festival was a smashing little weekend, so a big congratulations to... Joe and the crew that organised that festival and everyone who performed at it, the crew that were in charge of managing the stages and making sure everything ran according to plan, and a massive shout out to everyone who was at that festival as well. It was great to catch up with all the friends and all down there. That podcast with TPM is going to be coming out next week, so keep an eye out to that because it is going to be. A fairly smashing wee podcast episode. The Eurovision Song Contest has started in in, uh, Tel Aviv this week over in Israel and it is currently being used as a propaganda tool by the Israeli establishment to validate and legitimise the slaughter that they're carrying out on the Palestinian people. And if you are still in tune with the Eurovision Song Contest this year, then you're helping to legitimize that slaughter and that terrorism that the Israeli government are perpetrating on the Palestinian people. And I would highly recommend that you stop watching it and go instead to one of the alternative Eurovision events that are happening all over the country this week. Myself, I am going to be running... um, an outdoor training session in Belfast in the Falls Park on Saturday, the eighteenth of May, followed by a long table lunch and a small craft sale with handmade goods in the West Bank in Glornemona at the top of the White Rock Road. There is an alternative Eurovision event, a music event in the Dunkern on Sunday night in Belfast, and there is also a huge event. Alternative Eurovision event happening in the National Stadium. Christy Murakila and loads of other people are going to be playing at that. You can find out about those two, both those things on the Palestine Community Gym Instagram page. There is also going to be a Eurovision karaoke night upstairs in Plugged, which is above the Roundy Bar in Cork City Centre, organised by Keelan Sherlock. All the funds for... That gig and the Belfast gigs that I'm going to be a part of are going to be going towards the Palestine Community Gym, which is a project that we're involved in and that I'm heavily involved in myself personally to open a community gym in the Ada Refugee Camp in Bethlehem to help make a small change, a small positive change in the lives of Palestinian refugees who are living under very heavy and very severe Israeli occupation. So I think this is a good time for me to put the call out to everyone who's listening to this podcast to boycott the Eurovision and to support the Palestine community, gym. Remember that the boycott, the tactic of boycotting was actually originated in Ireland during the time when the landlords were pumping up the rent so much so that they were causing a lot of homelessness and a lot of deaths because of the rent hikes and the tenants started boycotting the the rent payments and also the boycott was one of the main tools that brought down South African apartheid and we have a very strong connection with that when uh, Mary Manning of Dunn Stores wouldn't handle South African goods and the Dunn Stores workers went out on strike and boycotted all South African products. That's one of the main things that brought down, one of the main international uh, movements that helped to bring pressure onto the South African government at a time that eventually brought down the apartheid system, the same system that kept Nelson Mandela in jail for 27 years. So it's not to be underestimated the strength of the boycott tactic, especially as an international movement to bring pressure to bear on tyrannical governments like the one that is hosting the Eurovision Song Contest right now I love music and I know lots of people who are big fans of that Eurovision style of music but that doesn't, that can't be you know like we can't artwash apartheid is the term that's being used and that's what it is we are the Eurovision is being covered by RTE, our national broadcaster so the tax money that is collected by RTE through the TV licence or other public monies that are paid from your wages before you see them the tax that goes to RTE is being used to send reporters over to Israel to cover this event it's used to broadcast to purchase the images to broadcast the Eurovision Song contest all over this country, and that is a further legitimization of something that is extremely wrong. And you just have to go and Google Palestine in and have a look at any of the even though, even the most biased uh, sources of news will have coverage of Palestine that will let you see that what's happening over there is, is terrible. Gaza has been attacked from the sky. Gaza, which is basically an open air prison with millions of people living within a very sh- a very small surface area or a, very, or a small area is they're bombing the absolute shit out of it from the sky and it's indiscriminate so if you're watching the Eurovision this year just remember that and I would highly recommend going and doing something else instead so that's that and I know that's not a very light way to start this podcast um, but it is what it is it's happening and it's something that we, that we need to do so what else uh, before we get stuck into this podcast with Miri um, um Go to the Patreon account for the Rebel Matters podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting the podcast so far. I'm getting loads of messages. Thanks very much to everyone who came and seen the live podcast last week as well. Uh, I've got some cracker episodes coming out. And my goal for the Patreon is to cover the basic costs of the production of this podcast, which... I think I'm putting that about 50 quid per episode at the minute, which is about 200 quid a month when there's four episodes per month. And that just covers the cost of going to travel to meet people, the cost of the subscriptions that are required to keep the podcast going out there without any ads as well. You might notice that if you're listening to other podcasts, that they have got adverts in them halfway through, or that other podcasts have got uh, external sponsorships which we have not got there are no ads no sponsors and it does cost a few quid to make these episodes i'm really enjoying making them and i know that we have got a nice little crew a few guys out there listening on a on a regular basis actually a big shout out to Dermy Shady, Dermy from Hermitage Green who was listening to the episode with Lisa o'flynn on festivals and Dermy did bring something up about that episode that i completely forgot about but last week's episode was about festivals Festival Do's, Don'ts and Advice and General Banter with Lisa O'Flynn and Derm did send me a message to remind me that at the beginning of Electric Picnic last year I did not have my phone because I forgot it and was running around the outskirts of the Electric Picnic Festival in the soaring heat with all the phone numbers of my friends written on my arm and then I had to go up to someone, meet them and then ask somebody else for a lender of their phone, ring my next friend, go and meet them. And it was just like lily pad hopping from friend to friend and borrowing people's phones and stuff like that there. So thanks for reminding me of that there, Jeremy. Uh, And thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast so far. So go on over to that Patreon and support the Rebel Matters podcast if you're in a position to do so. So that's that. Without further delay, let's get stuck into episode 44 of the Rebel Matters podcast with Mary Crilly. I'm interested to find out a little bit more about the centre and where it started and what kind of work workers do.
1: Well, the centre would have started back in 1983. We were the second centre in the country. Um, we started as a rape crisis centre. I think thinking back, um, during the only awareness we had then was maybe supporting women who were going to court. Because back then there was something like 35 reports of rape and sexual violence in Cork City and County, there's about 300 in the whole country, so it was seen as not an issue, not a problem, as kind of hidden, as kind of um, if girls got raped it was their own fault, which unfortunately is still a belief, you know, in a lot of kind of parts of society, but that was it back then, it was very hidden, so we just saw ourselves starting up seeing people who maybe needed to go to court or needed support the whole extent of child sexual abuse hadn't opened up, the institutional abuse hadn't opened up, Um, I think people were always aware of the abuse that went on, but it was all silent back then So it was a very difficult time starting. It was very lonely, very isolating, very unsure of your ground. If you think even now, say, if somebody said they wanted to become a therapist or a counsellor, they have any number of places to train in, any number of ways to do it. Um, Back then there was nothing. Like if a young boy, say, had been abused as a child and maybe he was having a difficult time, he'd probably end up in an institution. And I don't mean in psychiatric care where they have a health plan for you. I mean in an institution where you'd be there for years you know, and being treated for things that were nothing to do with what really happened here. Or a girl got raped, if she had trauma after she'd often end up in hospital and might be there for months. So there's really no support because, in my experience, if somebody's been abused, they don't need psychiatric care, they need other kind of support. But that was what it was like back then, so it was quite difficult.
0: Was it a small group of you said the same It was just a small centre?
1: group of women, yeah. So we were seeing for quite a long time, it was just a small group of women um, helping out, even though I know at that stage a lot of the people in authority, like the guards and the clergy, didn't want us around. They felt we were kind of disrupting the family unit or creating something that wasn't there.
0: And do you think that there was a resistance to the centre or the work that you were doing back then? because of the? There fact was that, a resistance. Like,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't even think about it. I know it. I mean, it was visible. Um, and there was no funding back then we were kind of renting a room we started a helpline in 1983 Um, I think in 1984 the first person came in and said she'd been abused as a child and that really made us look at ourselves in a different kind of way and see what can we do here to make sure we did no harm what kind of training can we get what can we do, it really was different it wasn't what we expected but that's what happened so between then and now there's been always like 40, 60 or 50, 50% of clients who are survivors of child abuse or those who have been raped as adults.
0: And looking back now, do you think that the resistance came from, like why do you think that that resistance was there in the first place?
1: Well, I think the whole area of child sexual abuse was hidden. I mean, especially they say in Ireland to do with young boys, most of them were were abused in institutions and it was happening wholesale. And you think about who had the power back then, the guards had the power and the church had the power. And they certain, and you wouldn't, if a child even came home from school and said that they had difficulties or they were beaten, it was, it happened. I mean, you know, when I was going to school, you were beaten. It just was part of the course. Nobody said anything. So I think back then there was just so much silence around it. And I think if a girl got raped, it was um, reinforced that it was her fault. And if she got pregnant, she was put in a mother and baby home. And the guys just strutted off to do it all over again. Like the majority of guys, I would like to say this at this stage, do not rape but the ones that do it are consistently doing it and they'll keep repeating it. So over the years, even now, we'd have been up in one of the mother and child homes speaking to the girls um, because the person running it knew some of them had been raped and just wanted them to know it wasn't their fault. But that's where they were put. So that's was Ireland like around girls and around women. They were silenced and they were abused and they were raped um, and nobody spoke about it. I mean, it was quite hard to kind of start speaking about it. People... I think within their own families might have talked about it. You might have heard about a young boy and something happened when he was small and he was never the same again, or a girl who was raped but looked at the state where she put herself in the position of it. You're talking about a situation where, um, you know, back then you'd never see a guy pushing a buggy, for example. It wasn't a done thing. It was kind of woman stuff. Or if a woman did have a child and she wasn't married, she couldn't present that child out in the open. She was deemed to be unclean, she was deemed to be a whore, basically. Whereas that didn't, where the guys were just guys, they were just doing what guys do. So that attitude was, I know it still prevails, but it was extremely strong back then.
0: Yeah, we went to see that movie about the Carrie Babies recently, okay, uh, which was in okay. 1985. was actually the year that I was born myself. Okay. So, it, it, things seems to have changed somewhat, but I just happened to be out with dinner with my mum the week after that, okay. and I asked her like, like, what was it like back in 1985, because my mum was expecting me and wasn't married, and she was like, yeah. "What the thing that was in the movie, that is how it was, like, that yeah. the families were kind of turning their backs on women a lot of the time, and um, I suppose society was kind of turning their backs on women who well, were, were expecting babies were, at, yeah. at that time. I mean,
1: they put them in homes, or if somebody did have the courage to kind of hang on to their child, they got very little support. I was around during the carry babies, because I remember even going to the tribunals, you know, when a lot of Irish women got together to try and object to what was happening, and the judge throws out of the room because that was unheard of for a group of women to kind of get involved in something like that. And Nell McCaffrey was very involved in it at that stage. I remember getting everybody to send up a single yellow rose just to kind of highlight the women of Ireland are here and thinking about you. It was appalling the way that happened. It was appalling, but very accepted because it was seen as kind of, she already had one baby. She was going to have another one. She murdered one, like without even any evidence or stuff. That's just the way women were treated. It was appalling. I we think it's only now Um, that she's thinking about going for compensation. Do you know what I mean? A lot of things have changed, but quite a lot haven't changed.
0: So from the centre's point of view, what were the the different fronts that you were sort of fighting the battle on?
1: We have kind of felt that awareness raising was hugely important, that we were a rape crisis centre back then. We changed the name uh, when we were 21 to Sexual Violence Centre. And the reason why we did that, even though I kind of felt I was betraying kind of the roots of the centre, because I think back then we had to kind of say... Um, we are a rape crisis because it's happening. But over the years, I kind of found more people are coming in and saying, I didn't know my brother could come in. Um, I wasn't really raped. Like 80% of people know who rapes them. So it's very hard for them to call it rape. They kind of say, but it's not like him. He's a really lovely guy. I must have done something. It must be my fault in some kind of way. Um, Or people might say, I didn't know I could come because I was abused as a child. So that's why we said we call it Sexual Violence Centre. But back then, it had to be a rape crisis. It had to be kind of very... Um, visible and very loud and very noisy um, but discreet enough that people would come in and see us because they had to get the message across that sexual violence is happening and in the first few years I remember um, a lot of elderly women coming in they didn't necessarily want counselling but they wanted to tell their story before they died and you got awful stories about maybe living on a farm and age 7 being raped by a big farm hand and the family finding out about it, cleaning the child up and saying, don't say anything else about it because we wouldn't like anybody to find out. And unfortunately that kind of still happens and that's how the guys get away with it because it's like clean yourself up, don't say anything, especially if rape happens within a group of friends, they won't want to know about it. And he will isolate the girl who he feels um, won't be believed.
0: Is that thing of cleaning it up and just like getting on with it, do you think that that's connected with the amount of power that the Catholic Church had in Ireland at the time?
1: It is hugely part of it, hugely part of it. I mean, girls, you know, even the whole community dress, the white dress or the white wedding dress, it still kind of gets to me. It's a whole little virgin girl um, who is to be there for the husband. I mean, a lot of women aren't like that, and a lot of guys aren't like that now. But back then, that was huge power. But there still is, if somebody's raped... Um, the shame is still put on them. Like, there's a sex assault treatment unit in the South Infirmary Hospital and that's where anybody can go if they want to be forensically medically examined. They can go with or without guards. And we're called out to see them first before they get examination. And you meet people from 14 to 70 there and I have meet all, met all those ages and without fail, the majority will say it's their fault or the majority, the young people will kind of say, I don't get them into trouble he's a young guy, is that what young guys do? No, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not, but it's what they're allowed to do, it's what we tolerate. Um, I've met elderly women who'd say it's their fault, even at the age of 70, and they know so much, and they said they know so much, but when it happened to them, because it was somebody they knew, they didn't match out for it, they might say they put themselves in the way of it. Not a clue that this guy who they like so much, whose friend would do this to them. So the shame is still put on them. It really is put on them, but it's their fault, or we use language like they put themselves in the way of it, or you were drunk, how do you know you didn't consent, all this kind of thing. So it's still there and still alive and well, unfortunately.
0: Is that thing of uh, victims feeling like it was their fault, is that part this is part of the attack in essence from the person who made the attack in the first place to make them feel like they brought it around themselves. What what the
1: person who who abused them or who rapes them will minimise it. Like an example of a guy who rapes might be, it's always somebody you know. Um, And you could have somebody who maybe is giving you a lift home. And I hate saying this because the majority of guys I think are decent. I know they're decent. But you could have a guy who gives a girl a lift home and he rapes her and she's totally stunned and totally shocked. He'll drop her near her home, she'll get out of the car, she goes home. Um, Like this is a story I just heard last week, where the girl kind of said that the next morning her mother came up to her in bed and said, um, there's a lovely young man at the door. He said he dropped you home last night because you were in an office state, and he, he left your handbag in the car and he's dropping the bag off. So what could she say about that? And that's how they trapped them. Or it could be another woman who came in, and it was her best friend's husband who raped her. And she said she told her best friend everything, but she can't hear. It could be somebody who's part of a group and they're all heading off to somewhere to the States or something from college, and one of them gets raped. Another group would still want to go to the States, but they will not want her. So it's about kind of get rid of the problem, so get rid of the victim, and they bring him along because he say, you know, she's all over, I thought she was all on for it, you know what I'm like. And he will be the real nice guy in the group that people like, and she might be somebody who's been you're unsure of or you're not even sure if you want or with you that kind of thing so unfortunately we do push the victim away and by doing that we allow this to carry on we allow the perpetrator to continue with it Bit like um what i'm finding really distressing at the moment is that case in dublin where the two young boys are up for murdering and raping the young 14 year old girl now um outside the case and what has to be proven is kind of what's been happening where they reported that she had to be walked to school and walked back. She's 14 years of age. She couldn't go to school of her own because of the bullying. And God knows what happened to her in school, and that was tolerated, and that was allowed, and very few people were shouting about it. That's where I find it worse. So I think what the guys did was just a continuation. They've got rid of, um, if they are guilty, um, they would have done so much or been involved or seen so much that this is a continuation. So that's, that's, that's quite distressing that that's allowed.
0: Is there two things there in that there's on one hand the minimisation of the abuse by the attacker and then on the other hand there's the kind of brushing over it by sort of society I guess? I
1: think there is and I think like say if you ask somebody why they won't tell the parents you know if you meet a young girl and she'd be talking about her dad and you kind of know by that she's definitely daddy's girl and you kind of say come on let's tell him let's ring him and it's kind of like he look at me differently or I don't upset him, or my mother's been sick, <coughs> or I have a, a brother who's kind of disabled, or I don't bring this on, it's my fault, as if this guy has done something to you, like say, if she was out there in the middle of the day and got beaten up, you could tell everybody, but because of sexual crime, she's put in the picture of kind of it's your fault in some kind of way and you can't tell anybody because you'll upset them. So keep it yourself, don't upset anybody and never tell anybody. There's a lot of that within families and within society where we still blame the girl. Where I still see it, look at any court case that goes on, like the um, conviction rate for for sexual violence in this country is 10%. It's very low and it's all about the issue of consent keeps coming up. So you're in a court case with somebody, um, like the perpetrator doesn't have to take the stand. He doesn't have to be questioned across questions at all. Like the people saw that in the Belfast rape case, which is very similar to what happens here. But she's on the stand for the first day, and all his side will do is discredit her. They might not even ask her anything about the evening or about the daytime or what happened, but they will discredit her in lots of different ways. So the jury are kind of looking at her in a, a certain kind of way. She's not a certain kind of woman. And I think young women on the jury think about themselves as kind of, That won't never happen to me because I never put myself in the position of being drunk. I'll never put myself in that kind of position and know better. Or if it does happen, I'll do something about it. So instead of, you know, asking why there's so many rapes going on, I think we need to start asking, why do we allow the rapists to continue with it? Why do we tolerate it? Why do we hide it? It's like, um, if you think about child abuse, no, I think it's extremely hard if somebody comes to you and says, your brother or your uncle, who you really are mad about, has abused me and we'd have you know, men and women coming in maybe in their 20s and 30s who say they want counselling but they want to report it no they never do it because of revenge they do it because um, they've been persuaded or re- really think that they're the only person this man has abused um, and now they see him with another young guy bring him to football or something and red lights are going off all over the place and they want to report it so they go to their family and this young guy might have had a difficult kind of time growing up, he might have been drinking, he might have been in trouble Instead, the family's kind of saying, um, God, this jigsaw really fits. We can see now why it's like this. No, the perpetrator will have manipulated quite a lot of people and be seen as a really good guy. They usually turn around and say, for God's sake, all the trouble you were in, all the grief you gave us, you broke your father's heart. And during all that time, the only man who kept consistently standing up for you was that man now who you're now accusing. What more can you say? Get out of here. And that's how families, some families deal with it. I've seen families who will kind of say to a young girl, we really don't believe it because we know you're a lying slut and what we're going to do is um, have him babysit for the whole lot of us. You know, so they put the perpetrator, they absolutely hand kids to, to him. It is hard to face up to it, but in my experience, young men and young women coming in here do not lie about what happens. They don't. There's something like 0.5% um, of false allegations, not 10 or 20%. It's very, very low.
0: Now that you mentioned the thing about the, the Belfast trial, there are similarities, just as we were talking about it, between the way that that case was conducted with the uh, kind of sh- putting the victim on trial as was in the, even the movie of The Carrie Babies where they were questioning yeah. every small thing and trying to come up with, nearly trying to come up with the reasons why it, it, sh- it shouldn't be true as opposed to trying to figure out yeah. what happened in actual effect. What, what's the, in your experience with dealing people at the centre here, what's the impact like what impact does that have on a person or their lives whenever sexual uh, violence is brushed under the carpet like that
1: I think they feel invisible I think they feel unimportant I think especially if you meet somebody say who's been abused as a child and then raped as an adult they think it's written on their forehead you would have say women and men who might have engaged in prostitution who might have engaged in drugs who might in, in drink and whatever they can't kind of cover what's happened to them and it's pure survival I think what we need to get over is the mentality of um, it was an adult rape sure it was only a three minute fuck like what's the problem and sure you sleep with everybody around the place anyway it has a huge impact on people it affects every part of their being it affects them they feel so ashamed and so useless and so unable to kind of move on from it whereas if they're able to stand up and say this is wrong what you did to me was wrong and I'm going to move on like I'd say the majority of them would say we don't want to go to court the majority of them just want the guy to say I'm sorry I really am sorry. I did it to you, and I'm sorry. Like I say, there's a great um, film which is worth seeing at some time. Um, it's called A Messenger. Alva Griffith is in it. It's an Irish film. Um, I have her contact details if you ever want to talk to her at any stage. She's brilliant. She is a lovely young woman in her late twenties. She was raped when she was in her early twenties. She worked in um, a restaurant, I think, in Dublin, and she always got the last bus home. That was the deal. And this one night, she was followed by a guy in the bus. And he got off the bus. He lived totally the other side of the city. He got off the bus. He followed her. He found a small area where there's a bit of grass area. He pulled her in. Um, He did everything possible to her, like besides rape and oral rape and beating her up and almost killed her. And he admitted that he did almost kill her. Only two guys came along and chased him away. But by that stage, he'd really done a huge amount of damage to her. And, you know, that case went to court because there's no way with the DNA there and the bruising that he could say it was consent and he got a sentence and then there's a thing called restorative justice which I think works very effectively for like say if somebody damages a, a graveyard and where families meet the people who do it and kind of say this is the impact it's had on me because I think young people who do it don't even think twice and sometimes when they realise the impact it might change their mind that's what restorative justice was about or tourists who might get robbed and they only have the one phone so they're left with nothing um, so it was kind of a People talking about bringing it into sexual crimes, which I think is wrong because there's too much of a power kind of based there in sexual crimes. But anyway, what Alba wanted, after um, the guy finished his sentence, she wanted to meet him. Like, you'll have a lot of people ringing in who say, I'm after getting word from the prison service, he's coming out, and he's coming back to live in Cork, and he's coming back to live beside me, and I can't deal with this, and they're scared shitless of even meeting him or seeing him, because he's had that kind of power over them. And they'll often say when they've been raped, is not only what he does to them, it's what he says to them, or what a name calls, or whatever he does to them. So she wants to meet him. And this is a fascinating thing because it's about kind of him meeting. And he says initially, um, I hope, you know, expect me to say I'm sorry, because I'm not. And then she's only allowed to ask a certain amount of questions. She can't go on a rant like I, I, I did the questions and the answers over the gate tonight. night it was on the gate and I said to her I don't know how she didn't go over the table at him because I would have.
0: Was it kind of like a, there was a facilitator there, there was, or something there, like was, there was
1: probation there and there was um, a counsellor there and there was about three or four other people there. She had one person supporting her And then there's an independent counsellor and then there's probation with him, two probation people. But he was getting great attention, like, you know, being touched on the shoulder saying, you're very good to do this and thank you and we know this is very difficult for you. And I was thinking very difficult for you. Um, I don't know how she did it, but she wanted to know. So he was kind of saying, do you know, I got hurt too when the guys um, pulled me off you, they broke my collarbone. No, she had been hospitalised. She had to leave that area because it was really hard to go back to the bus stop where she was all the time. Um, And that was his kind of concern, that poor him. And he had a difficult childhood. He had no more difficult than anybody else from what the research was showing. But that was his mentality. You know But she really tried to get the nitty-gritty of, why did you do it to me? I don't know you. I hadn't served you that night. I had nothing to do with you. I had nothing to do with you. And she hadn't done to do with him. Um, And eventually he kind of said, I saw you. You fucking high heels. And I thought, you fucking have it coming. And that's what rape is, you see. It is about violence. It is about control. And it's very premeditated. Like, nobody could say that he lost for a minute because he got on that bus and he waited 20 minutes till her stop came and then got off the bus and followed her. But the whole interaction there was fascinating. Um, and one part that I found really difficult to deal with and you know it's one part I said that really kind of got me in the stomach when I was looking at it he was kind of saying that now he's um, probation have got him somewhere to live and he's involved in the group of male and female friends and you know he's happy out with them and this kind of stuff now if you think about all this is set up for him which is great but she has to find her own counselling if she wants it um, and that there was a girl in the group who he kind of liked and she said to him one night um, as he was looking straight at one jo- 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 but he was totally disconnected um, she said, will you bring me home? Because And he said, Jesus Christ, of course I will. Everybody deserves to get home safe. But he lit up, like charmed with himself. And I'm thinking, a few years previously, you had taken that girl and nearly murdered her, but now you're the good boy? And that's the mentality you have to deal with, and that's what the, the people we come across who rape do. They do it for power, they do it for control. Like, if you talk about all the stuff that's going around um, colleges about consent classes my only um concern about them is that miscommunication will be seen as a a reason for rape that if you only communicated better you wouldn't have raped you like you know yourself there's guys try it on and girls try it on and if the person they're with doesn't want to have sex they might get crude with them or call them a tease or i'm sure there's more crude language than that and then leave her at that or might say f you and walk away that kind of thing because they've really wanted to get off of someone that night but they won't force themselves on them. The guys who rape don't want consent. You could send them to 20 consent classes. They would top the class. They don't want consent. They want power and they want control. And if you look at them even the 70 year old we met who've been raped or the men in the 50s who've been raped and people see that very clearly as appalling and as really that really shouldn't happen. But we can see it so clearly as a crime and we're appalled by it. Um, but if a young girl or a young guy gets raped all of a sudden it's a grey area. It's no more grey than it is with those two, but we make it grey. And, like, I feel kind of women, maybe women over 40 or 50, because very often they think they'll never get raped now. It hasn't happened to them. They're lucky it's never going to happen again because we keep putting it down to young girls being attractive and that's all, to get raped, whereas it's all across the board. And it's Muslim women who are dressed from head to toe get raped. It's everybody. You know, nobody kind of is... Um, can escape from it. Okay. And one in five girls in this country would be raped. As children, one in five girls and one in seven boys are abused in this country. As adults, one in maybe 25, 27 boys will be raped. The others will be beaten up. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen to men, but the research is showing that men are more likely to get their head kicked in. But they're also getting sexually assaulted. And what happens to them as men, unfortunately, girls are told from a very early age, this might happen, watch what you do. In other words, it's your fault if it does. Even though families don't mean to put that message across, that's what they're saying. Um, Guys are told to be careful and fight back or run or this kind of stuff. So when somebody turns around and rapes them, As human beings, as men, they don't know who they are anymore. Their ego is gone. I don't mean how arrogant they are, but as people. They don't know who they are anymore.
0: You mentioned a figure there earlier on that only 10% of... It was a figure about how many Uh, 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 sexually go to to court.
1: And and end up in conviction as well. It's very low.
0: So that means that there's a very high percentage of uh, people who have raped... That are still to, in the community.
1: All you have to do is say no. All you have to do is say I didn't do it or she consented. And you know, you go to court and it's up to the state to prove it happened and then the defence will get up and will really cross question the victim and intimidate them in their own kind of way, even though they won't use that word, um, and persuade the jury that she or he can't be trusted because of their lifestyle and the guy is there with his suit with his mammy and daddy beside him, um or his girlfriend or an employer or over the years it was always a priest in a GA club um, and he doesn't have to open his mouth.
0: But even at that, that's only the cases that go to court. Like exactly. The vast majority of cases don't, oh, go, don't to go to court. So no. how how as a, a so community do we deal with that? Because there's, it means that there's there's vast amount of people who have uh, sexually attacked people that are going about their daily lives.
1: Okay, I think by kind of, I think there's ways of stopping people. I think there's ways of us knowing what goes on. I think there's ways of everybody standing up and saying, okay, this isn't appropriate. I think there's ways of, you know, even we start with the um, stuff that goes on in pubs, the comments and this kind of stuff, um, and the behaviour that's allowed, or the girls getting groped and washed in Washington street on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and people think it's a great laugh. And if you do report it, you're overreacting. We need to start at that level, kind of saying this behaviour at any level isn't acceptable. Like
0: calling each other out.
1: Yeah, and I think especially the guys calling each other guys out. I mean, you've guys there who wouldn't dream of taking part in anything, but know their friends are doing it and don't want to call them out. Now, I can understand why, because they don't isolate themselves from the group. But they have to. That's where we have to start, because I can imagine if that was their sister who was being groped or being abused, they'd do something about it. So we just have to stop, start at that stage. I read something there in the journal yesterday about um, I thought this was so typical of a young girl who was in, on the Lewis line and she sat in a seat and then four guys got on and surrounded her and sat beside her and they were drinking and they made lewd comments and it was non-stop um, and she was feeling very uncomfortable when the train came to a stop, she managed to run off and hop into another carriage, but they could see her and they were shouting up at her you fucking stuck up bitch, all this kind of thing and it was three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon so it's not always at night time and people were there not saying anything, do you know?
0: There are, There is the thing about about say, speaking out when you see something that's inappropriate happen, but in, on the extreme version of that, there's also like, there are people out there who know other people who have raped women. Absolutely. And it, it, that's, a, that's a challenging thing in itself because it's not the case that, it's not, you know, if I know of someone who's out there who through one way or another have learned that they have sexually attacked somebody, it's not my position to go and tell the police because the victim is the no, person the, Yeah, who, true.
1: And the victim has to report it or else the police can't do anything.
0: So that's a challenge in itself and how how do we deal with with people like that that are in the community still? It
1: is. And I mean, I think if you know somebody who has been raped, it's even a matter of kind of saying, look, I'm sorry it happened to you. Let me know if I can do anything. Because even getting that bit of support gives them the courage to go a bit further if they know, well, somebody believes me. Um, And we need to look at rape as what it is, not a sexual crime. You know, it's a crime of power and control. And then if we can take the whole bit out of it that... um, so she was asking, and she's only a whore anyway. And see it as any other crime. Then we can deal with it in a clearer way than, you know, this kind of grey area that we like to put in. But we're back to kind of the version of the whore. We're back to kind of women who are either virgins or whores. We're really back to that when it comes to court, when it comes to how we look at women and how we see them. Or, you know, somebody might come in or I might see somebody in the hospital and they might be reporting and my head will kind of know or will say whether this will go anywhere or not depending on who she is and where her past is, and I should have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. But I know if that person's had a difficult life and they can understand, she'd be pulled apart. And, and has nothing to do with what happened.
0: The other thing is that it's one thing when it's a really violent attack that happens and people witnessed it, but I would say that most of them don't happen like that.
1: No, they don't. And outside, like I say, it's 80% of people who you know, and it's kind of very sudden and it's unexpected and it's kind of like shock or it's like... You know, if somebody gets raped, it can be even hard to say, I was raped. It's easier to say, maybe I did consent, maybe I don't know, because then you can live with yourself. But if you become a rape victim, it's very hard, but every part of the being, every part of the body will tell them that they were raped because they know they were.
0: Do you think that we're getting better or changing for the better in Ireland?
1: I think we're changing. I think we're talking more. I mean, I think even the fact that we go to schools and we do a lot of stuff in transition years and people are talking about it, but the victim-blaming is still there alive and well. And we change that because we help people not to feel ashamed and guilty about what was done to them. God, their life can be so different. And they come in, like say a young girl will come in and they kind of say, why are you here? Um, you need to know kind of what's going on in their life or why, why now. They've coped for the last three or four years, and a lot of times that they've met a lovely guy, but they can't be intimate with him. And he's nothing like the guy that raped him. Doesn't look, doesn't sound like him, but their body kind of is jerking or reacting in some kind of way. And um, you could have somebody who, a man, say, for example, who's coming in who might have a little child and who's afraid to bathe or touch a child because of this myth that goes around that if you're abused, you will abuse. You know what I mean? And I know I talked to, um, somebody who works with perpetrators recently and they were saying any program that they ran 30% or less of people in there were abused so it's, it doesn't follow through that if you're abused you will all of a sudden become an abuser but you know if you get this stuck in your head it can drive you mad and there's lots of myths out there I often wish to say that juries who are picked for a trial would be taken out of the room and when they're given the information about what the trial is about and that they've only to judge the evidence that some independent person would come in and tell them about the myths to do with rape or sexual abuse. Because you could have um, a barrister there kind of saying, he didn't report for 20 years. That's really unusual, ladies and gentlemen, jury. People usually report within a year, whereas it's not. It's quite common that it's 20 years. But jury members might know this, so I'd love that kind of information to be given. So they won't make a call on what... They'll only make a call on the evidence and not on this other stuff that had been spilt, or like last year. I was thrilled with the reaction last year after the barrister um, held up the underwear in court. And that wasn't to prove that um, the underwear had been had blood on it or was torn. That was just to show, look what this little slut was wearing. Now you go into pennies or duns and look at the underwear in there. That's all you see. It's what they're wearing. Beyond me, how they do. But that's, that's what people wear. How dare she? But I was thrilled with the reaction of young people who hadn't seen this before because I would have seen that over the years in court who hadn't seen this before and just got up and started marching and were appalled by it.
0: I was listening to somebody else speaking recently on the subject of racism and um, he was a Jamaican guy and it was a an English guy, a white English guy was interviewing him and we were kind of, the presenter was kind of talking in terms of like how, are we evolving in terms of this? Are we, are we slowly changing attitudes? And the person who was being interviewed, the guy from Jamaica was like, racism is not like we need to evolve out of it. It's not, oh, gently, gently. It should be something that shouldn't have, shouldn't happen in the first place and shouldn't continue. Yeah. Therefore, there isn't really a tolerance for trying to ease ourselves out of it. And it's very similar in this instance. And it's not like, I feel like sometimes that, that the the sort of narrative that we have at the minute in terms of educating boys of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and consent can be quite like soft-handed yeah. Like, well, this is you know you can't do this. You can't do that. It needs to be like. Does it not need to be, like?
1: And I think every guy needs to think of if they see a girl being assaulted or know about it that they have to think that could be your sister, that could be your mother, that could be your grandmother because then we we'll think differently about it. You know, I mean, you can. I think at the time when Alba met the guy, she just wanted to know why he didn't see her as a human being, as a young, gorgeous young woman going about her job, but he just decided she was up herself. He didn't see her as a, a human being, or he decided not to and he brutally raped her and that's what it's about or somebody in you know in the group where you're part of a group and you kind of really like these guys and you're all heading off to somewhere or you're part of some campaign or something and then one of them rapes you and you God what did I do? What did I do? Why me? That's always the question they ask why me?
0: I was out on a Sunday night in Cork City and happened to end up with a, a few people some of them that I knew and some of them that, were, that I didn't know before but we were all kind yeah. of hanging out together and there was quite an interesting exchange because one person in the group, uh, a woman, had was saying that someone had grabbed her ass at one stage while she was yeah. on stage performing yeah. with the band, and we're obviously we were saying like how can that still be like who did that and who's the who are the friends of the person who did that as well that led him to yeah. it? But then another person in the group, another woman, sort of recalled the situation where someone had done some, something very similar. To her, but she was kind of laughing about it, and she she was from a different kind of from a from a different group of friends as such. And I say, and it it's just seems interesting how in some circles it's become completely unacceptable, and some other circles it's still something you can just laugh it off.
1: And I don't know if they even laugh it off, but I think they minimise it. I think that's the way people get through it by kind of because it happens so often. I'd say if you went out the street and did the survey of kind of a lot of the young women on a Saturday night or other other night. I'd say the majority of them will have been either groped or assaulted in some kind of way. It's what they live with, it's what they do, which is awful. So it needs to be made unacceptable.
0: How do we go about changing the attitudes then?
1: Well, I think young people are the answer. I mean, if you look at the last two campaigns, the last two referendums, I mean, they gave me such life, such kind of, yeah, come on. You know, the, they really did with the both amendments, not only with the results of them which were brilliant um but the way they went out and did it and young people i think have that going them and have that kind of thing about injustice um you know we'll campaign for a lot of things but just when it comes down to women and men and the attitude that's allowed or tolerated um like that young girl who's bullied in the school and was called all sorts of names there still is that going on that difference between what the guys are allowed to do and get away with what the girl's are expected to put up with. That's where it needs to change. But it needs to change very early. See, I think if you've got kids early, um, like you see little boys and little girls playing together, and they're happier playing together. And you know, you'd see stuff on different programmes where something's done to a girl or something's done to a boy, and the boy's kind of saying, That's not fair. You know, why do I get this and she doesn't? That's not fair. So you start at that age just with equality issues and just saying, This is what's acceptable and this isn't what's acceptable. And then I think you move up because then they get it. And guys can become very protective and very um, understanding and very friendly when they know like back off here. So if a guy knows there's going to be a consequence, like say you'll find in domestic violence, I know in the army at one stage um, where they decided that there was going to be consequences for guys who were abusing their partners because before that there wasn't or their behavior changed. There's consequences. There has to be some kind of consequence and the behaviour will change. There are a certain amount of predators who will abuse children who don't want to change the behaviour and that's different. But the guys who think it's okay, you know, every Saturday night to, you know, go out and rape a girl, that has to change. I'm not talking about the guys who are going out every Saturday night to see how far they get with someone or to have sex. That's their own business. You know, and if a girl's consensual, that's their own business. And talking about this other behaviour which is unacceptable. I'm grabbing somebody. I see it all the time and I see it starting kind of if you go out um, this year, wander around town this year if you remember um, when junior self-results come out and you'll find the kids queuing up outside Savoy or outside the well that's not there anymore, the PAV or the the Cork City Hall where this this goes on for them and just watch the behaviour of the guys it's appalling and they're only fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. 15, 16, I don't know why they are and what they're calling the girls and what they're allowed to call the girls but what's worse, or what I find worse is, because um, they're only doing what they're told to do or what they're allowed to get away with you'd find other people walking around and say the guys would be there in their little jeans and their shoes and their t-shirts and that kind of stuff the girl will be in shoes that she can't walk in and dresses up around her arse and they're invincible and it's their first big night out and people would be saying, look at her what, in the name of God Is she doing that? Who let her out? Look at the state of her. What are the young men supposed to think and do when they see that around them? That behavior, that attitude needs to change. That um, guys see girls in that kind of way and might want to be with them, but they're not going to rape them. So it's, you know, you could have a girl wrapped in a blanket and she's the one that's going to get raped. So it's that kind of stuff we need to keep talking about. Not in a way that um, you isolate people or they feel, ah, here she goes again. She better shut up. I'm not listening to her. In a way that they kind of get it. And they get it, this affects somebody for the rest of their life.
0: There's just two things that just came to mind there that I think are important points to bring up. But one of them you just made is that rape isn't caused by like the clothes that someone's wearing or what state they're in. That it's yeah. caused by rapists. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought of a few minutes ago Um, was that when you were talking about people bringing court cases forward like 20 years ahead, that there isn't actually a limit on when you can bring a case forward, which I think is an important thing for people to know as well.
1: And, you know, the rough thing for people too is that people have a lot of expectations of the justice system. Like, you know, people come in here and they say, I never thought I'd end up in here. That's what the majority of people would say. Um, I might have passed by here. I might have driven by. I saw your place. I never thought I'd end up in here. And then they report to the guards. And the guards, in fairness, um, are very supportive. And I say their ratings have kind of gone way up over the years. And that people, the majority of times, would say the guards were great and really looked after them in that kind of way. But you know the way you hear this crap about... um, Somebody took me to court. I did nothing, but she took me to court. Nobody can take anybody to court. All you can do is make a statement and get forensically examined if there is um, DNA in you, that kind of stuff. And then the guards get together an investigation file and then they send it to the Director of Public Prosecutions in Dublin and they decide without ever meeting the victim whether there's a case to answer or not. So that's where they're often left down when DP comes back and says, there's not enough evidence here. Um, for a conviction and now lately there's a new DPP Claire Loftus so at least she's introduced um, a piece of legislation where she'll meet the victim or where they tell them the reasons why for years they weren't told why it was kind of very this is our office nothing to do with you but she will tell them why it helps a little bit Um, but it's like we need to get away from this kind of stuff that girls are lying about it and they bring somebody to court and I know somebody as if they were you know I don't know how many times I've been told hang on I know somebody and exactly what happened as if they were in the room watching it Do you know. Um, but nobody can take anybody to court they can just make a statement and the DPP decides if it was the case or not and then you're called as the number one witness for the state, you don't need a witness you have your own statement, you don't see anything that's in the file and he has seen absolutely everything which he's entitled to
0: I have a lot of questions that I, I want to ask but I know we're kind of short on time so at some stage we might Get back. Well,
1: I'm around any time. Yeah, I'm doing another yeah.
0: one at some stage. Um, I, I, I
1: have no problem at all. The because we can, we can go in and talk about the, kind of the other work we do, the type of counselling, or you know the history, what's happened in the past, kind of 36 years in the country, or you know, something that's fascinating. Do you know?
0: Yeah. Also, I'd be very interested to hear your opinions on. Like, I think a part of the narrative, or, or a part of the conversation around how men and women are relating to each other, and especially. In light of the recent referendums and the court cases that have been quite high profile in Ireland, is the the presence or absence of a dominating sort of patriarchy and how that affects yeah. the knock on effect of people who are bringing court cases forward um, after incidents incidents of sexual violence? But I feel like if we start that now, we'll be here. Tonight. I know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. I know.
1: So, <laughs> no, but it is lovely meeting. I would be happy to meet you anytime.
0: But so if someone. We've covered a lot, a lot of ground there, and I think that people who are listening to this, you know, there's a high possibility that it's a very personal yeah. uh, conversation that we, we've had that people can relate to it on a very personal level. If somebody did want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing here, or want to get into well, some, they can
1: email us on um They can text or they can phone one eight hundred four nine six four nine six. I mean, what I would like to say is. Only about 10 or 15% of people will come in for counselling. I think especially Irish people. I think we're more private about stuff like this. Um, And for me, I really appreciate you coming over because for me, it really matters that people out there have an awareness about sexual violence and the impact it has on people and that the majority of of, of those coming in here who say they want to tell their family They want to tell their sons, they want to tell their brothers, they want to tell their uncles, they want to tell their aunts, they want to tell their mothers, they want to tell their families, like, you're the people who matter. We're the people who kind of hopefully help them when they're in um, a stage of life where they just are dealing with things in the way they want to deal with. And we try and help them cope with it better and kind of help them work through what has happened. But it's always the families that matter. So we need to kind of start talking about kind of not just saying to people if it has happened to you please tell me but look no matter what I'm going through if your mother is ill um, or father's kind of saying you are my baby, you are my daughter um, I would be hurt if something happened but I'd be more hurt if you didn't tell me um, to take responsibility back from the victims to say I can't tell because I really love my family and I can't tell them and then the other side is you have other families or other people who say I can't tell them because they wouldn't understand or they wouldn't care and that's reality for some people as well but just for everybody out there to know if they even have a tiny conversation about this it makes a huge difference it really breaks the silence and that they hugely hugely matter
0: is there also an opportunity for family members who have had a relative that's been raped or something like that
1: there is yeah yeah we we organize support for them not as many months or however long we do somebody who's been raped, but absolutely, we do meet them and support them in the best way we can because it is hard, you know, especially if somebody um, has been raped and they don't want to talk about it. The majority of people immediately after rape won't want counselling. It's like kind of they have to adjust to the fact that this happened and families don't know what to do. Do they toe around them? Do they make them do something? The girl isn't going out for weeks, they're worried about it, or else um, somebody might come in and they say, She went out to follow me to a disco, she couldn't have been raped how in the name of God would you go out to follow week if you were raped? That's just for a way of dealing with it. Or a guy who's getting so angry they can't deal with it and what do they do? So we absolutely do support them in whatever way we can.
0: Right, thanks very much. And thank you. Again.
1: Lovely yeah, meeting yeah. you.
0: That brings episode 44 of the Rebel Matters podcast to a conclusion. Go ra to Mary Crilly for taking the time out of her busy day over at the Sexual Violence Centre to record that episode and thanks for you for hanging on and listening through and also for supporting the podcast if you want to support the podcast a little bit more then leave a rating and review wherever you're listening to it share it on your social media and if you want to be super sound go on over to the Patreon account for the Rebel Matters podcast and become a patron of the podcast to help cover the costs of recording the episodes we've got TPM coming up next week and then we'll see where we're going to go from there so until then, can you give fury and a August a